Thank you for tuning in to this 2019 lecture on social media and internet addiction across cultures by myself, Dr. Ravi Chandra in San Francisco, California. For more, go to ravichandramd.com or sflovedojo.org to find other lectures in this series. Thank you so much. So thank you for joining me here today, and uh, I'm happy to talk to you about internet addiction across cultures. And uh, this is actually an image from Cambodia that I took a few years ago. You can see the, the young boy there in the marketplace, in the, night, in the, uh, the big marketplace, uh, their open-air market. He's playing with his smartphone while his mom is selling things. So, uh, the, and I've seen this kind of image in Cuba and elsewhere in Asia. So. Uh, Smartphones are ubiquitous around the world. Um, and I'm wearing this shirt just to remind me that technology, it's got airplanes on it, it's just to remind me that technology is not all bad. Um, so there are good and bad, but we do have to know the bad and the down, downsides of technology to really do uh, well with it. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, actually, uh, you know, so I think, I think all these environments that we're creating with technology are very powerful. I mean, you know, beginning with movies, certainly, um, and radio and, and, and television. Uh, I was a latchkey kid and I, I came home uh, from uh, school and I would uh, watch, uh, you know, hours of television. Uh, Exactly, all kinds of things uh, on television, and and you know, I think a lot of my generation feel it didn't really harm us. I mean, uh, and I you know, I suppose we're, we're most of us are probably doing all right, uh, despite and, and maybe because of uh, the the images that we got from television. But those were narratives, and uh, they were kind of really geared for children. Um, and now children, uh, particularly, are exposed to so much more. And, uh, and social media as well. So the, the environment's different. Um, and so I think, and I'll mention this again during the talk, that it's really important, I think, for people who are creating these environments to understand the effects that they can have on uh, the people who are immersing themselves in the environments, be it a movie or, uh, or, or a video game or social media. But it's also important for us as individuals to recognize the kinds of effects that uh, that these media can have on us. The medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan said uh, in the 60s, uh, and even more so now. Media is just an ever-present part of our lives, and it's hard to get away. We have to make conscious efforts to get away. Um, so, so I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, but again, this is a picture from Cambodia from uh, uh, 2015. Um, all right, and now I just wanted to um, show a, a little clip from uh, PBS Frontline Digital Nation from 2010 uh, with Douglas Rushkoff uh, and produced and directed by Rachel Dretzen. Um, there's also a documentary called Web Junkie and Hao Wu's great documentary called The People's Republic of Desire, which I would highly recommend uh, as more modern updates about all this. But um, let me go ahead and play this 10-minute uh, segment. We're immersed in it. And it's changing so rapidly, we're just beginning to grasp what's happening. So think of how long it took us to understand that smoking was bad for our health. I think it takes people a while for reality to hit them in the face. It's hard to get people to stop texting while they're driving. Although it's a 23 times greater risk of having an accident. How do you get people to stop these behaviors? It's very difficult. 
Since when has spending time online become a risky behavior, like drinking or gambling? Is it that addictive? I think it's, it's addictive. There's controversy among experts whether it is or not. In Asia, there's a recognition that teenagers, many teenagers, are addicted to video games. I think that we're behind the Asians in terms of focusing on the problem. It's hard to follow the story of Asia's digital revolution without somehow ending up in South Korea. South Korea's digital culture isn't characterized by the home computer so much as its legendary internet cafes, known as PC bombs, which dot the streets of every major city here. There are thousands of them in Seoul alone, offering cheap, 24-7, high-speed internet access to the tens of thousands of kids who want to play video games all day, or even all night. Do you ever stay overnight, all night? <laughs> it's here in the PC bonds, people say, that the Korean gaming craze has gotten out of hand. And it was sobering to see row after row of kids glued to these screens, expressionless. As it turns out, a few people have actually died in PC bonds after gaming marathons where they played 50 hours or more with little food or water. We read the newspaper about Korea. They say gaming is a problem now, that people are addicted to the games, addicted to the internet, and they're not getting their studies done. Do you feel, is there a problem for you? There's an argument about whether it's a real disease or just a phenomenon. But we think it's definitely an addiction. The Korean government commissioned this psychiatrist, Dr. An Dong-hyun, to conduct a three-year study on the question of internet addiction. His findings helped Korea become one of the first countries to treat it as a psychiatric disorder. About 90% of Korean children use the internet in their daily life. Of those, about 10 to 15% are in the high-risk group. What's now a public health crisis began with the best of intentions. Ten years ago, this country emerged from economic crisis by refashioning its culture and commerce around digital technology. Its embrace of the online world was broad and deep. And it's not altogether surprising that South Korea has become one of the first countries to confront the fallout of the digital revolution. We met 15-year-old Chung Myung-il in a city south of Seoul. It's pretty extreme. I play seven or eight hours a day. Then on weekends, I stay up all night on the computer. 
When young Il starts a game, he doesn't know when to stop, and he just plays for hours. Over the last year, young Il has dropped from the top half of his class to the bottom. His mother thinks it's because of the computer. I'm not sure, but I think he mostly uses the computer to play some type of fighting game. I wish those games didn't exist. That inability to communicate with me, his own mother, makes me so sad. I think if I can't control him right now, I may lose my son. This is an addiction. Only an addict could act this way. In an effort to help kids like Young Il, the Korean government has opened free internet rescue camps throughout the country. At the recommendation of a teacher, Young Il's mother will be leaving him here for two weeks. The day starts with a group counseling session. Most of the kids here say they've had to seek medical treatment for conditions that resulted from overusing the computer, like eye strain and ear complications. The kids' treatment regimen, surprisingly low-tech, seemed designed mainly to recapture a childhood lost to the computer. Shot! Shot! When you go home, will you start using computer again, or will it be different? Honestly, I don't expect a lot. Not using the computer for 10 days was hard. I just kept thinking about the games, or about getting out of the camp and going home. My heart went out to these kids, casualties of the digital revolution. For better and for worse, these people are connected and connecting through the technologies that I championed 20 years ago, when I first started writing and speaking about a future I called Siberia. His latest is called Siberia. Doug Rascoff joined us this morning in New York. Hello, Doug. Hi, good to be here. In the early days of the Internet, it was easy for me to reassure people about what it would mean to bring digital technology into their lives. Are folks getting a little afraid of the technology since it's going so quickly? Are we going to be left in the dust or can we keep up? Well, I think people get scared as things develop, especially when they... Back then, I was convinced the web could help us change in profoundly good ways, yeah. allowing us to evolve into better people. Well, I'd like to introduce you, Miss Tolman, to the new human being. It's a new human being that's, that's evolved, I think, to the next level. And I think it's... 
I think it's fascinating and wonderful to watch. I felt like I was in on a secret, that these old fuddy-duddies were just panicking, underestimating our kids' ability to adapt to the new reality before us. If you're actually moving around the pixels yourself on the screen, over the past 20 years, however, the net has changed from a thing one does to the way one lives, connected all the time. And it appears that far more of these kids than I would have thought are overwhelmed. The Korean government has taken an assertive approach to addressing the social problems caused by the net. At Korean elementary schools, kids are taught to go online around the same time they are taught to read. But they're also taught something else, how to use computers responsibly. It's required for Korean students, starting in the second grade. At this school, signs preaching healthy internet habits line the hallways. And what's this one say? Slanderous comments on internet hurts my friends. And this one says, constantly playing computer games shrinks your capacity to think. Our ancestors were known as the politest eastern state. Now, we are the kingdom of internet etiquette. When a child is just six years old, what's the most important things they need to learn about the internet? I think they must learn ethics first, internet etiquette and manners, and then learn the technical side of it. Watching these kids, I'm skeptical that this top-down approach could ever work in America. I guess we'll have to find our own way. Netiquette, 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 netiquette. Um, so uh, obviously they have a very different situation uh, there in Korea than we have here, and this was 2010. Um, and maybe there are things that are different about Korean culture which support this kind of uh, broad-scale intervention, but, uh, but I think it's something that we should certainly look into. Um, uh, I think these kids are absorbing a lot of great messages uh, kind of like a Mr. Rogers neighborhood uh, in the internet, uh, which we don't have uh, here, uh, perhaps. Uh, and, um, and I think, you know, experts like Douglas Rushkoff, Sherry Turkle, Jaron Lanier, have all, were all, you know, big enthusiasts of the internet back in the 80s and 90s, and they've all turned course. Uh, and so these experts, over the course of 30 to 40 years, have come around about the internet and I think there's so many people who are cyber evangelists right now, but, uh, but hopefully society won't take another 30 or 40 years to develop balance about this. Um, so uh, 
Here's a quote from uh, Kimberly Young in a book, on, a textbook on internet addiction. Internet addiction is a global problem that transcends culture, race, age, and gender. As children and teenagers go online at younger ages, new risks are created, and we currently know little about the lasting impact of online technologies on brain development. Uh, we may be inadvertently endangering children without realizing this impact by introducing technology at younger ages. So there are, the experts are warning us uh, about the problems, but, um, and, and uh, here's Edward Kostranova in um, Exodus to the Virtual World. Anyone who sees a hurricane coming should warn others. I see a hurricane coming. Over the next generation or two, ever larger numbers of people, hundreds of millions, will become immersed in virtual worlds and online games. While we are playing, things we used to do on the outside, in reality, won't be happening anymore or won't be happening in the same way. You can't pull millions of person hours out of a society without creating an atmospheric level event. If it happens in a generation, I think the 21st century will see a social cataclysm larger than that caused by cars, radios, and TV combined. The exodus of these people from the real world, from our normal daily life, will create a change in social climate that makes global warming look like a tempest in a teacup. So that's a, that's a big warning. Um, and uh, even, uh, it turns out there's at least one presidential candidate who understands this threat as well. Is Ready Player One a future that we're headed towards? Ready Player One is definitely a future we're heading towards because virtual reality and entertainment is getting better and better and the real world is getting rougher and rougher. So we're gonna have a lot of kids with goggles on uh, in a virtual world that's gonna be a lot more appealing and attractive than the real world. So, um, so yeah, so Ready Player One was that Steven Spielberg movie uh, about uh, a society built around virtual worlds. So, um, so the, the digital uh, impact is, is, uh, is being seen by even some political leaders. Um, but other people are more sanguine or positive about the possibilities of the virtual world. Uh, Jane McGonigal is an expert and a game creator, a psychologist, um, and uh, or rather, uh, she's yeah, she's an expert in uh, game creation uh, and a PhD. Um, uh, McGonagall states uh, that, uh, that reality wasn't designed from the bottom up to make us happy. She points out that games can give people a sense of capability and engaged activity, a very powerful draw indeed. Um, so she says, gamers want to know where in the real world is that gamer sense of being fully alive focused and engaged in every moment? Where is the gamer feeling of power, heroic purpose, and community? Where are the bursts of exhilaration and creative game accomplishment? Where is the heart-expanding thrill of success and team victory? While gamers may experience these pleasures occasionally in their real lives, they experience them almost constantly when they're playing their favorite games. And she actually advocates for kind of collaborative games that can help people in the real world too. And there, there are examples of this. So there's possibilities for gaming to bring people together and to be socially uh, minded and socially positive. Um, so, so we're still uh, seeing uh, uh, whether, that, uh, whether we can harness the power of games 
not only to distract us from reality, but to make ourselves happy, better, and even make reality better. Um, so VR, virtual reality, is being used to treat post-traumatic stress disorder and mental health conditions. And uh, some people say that games can bring us back to relationships. Um, all right, so uh, here's what I think, uh, though, uh, that in every environment, artificial or real, there are conscious and unconscious biases, and also messages inherent in the medium which might lead us away from relationship, compassion, mindfulness, and reason, and towards those implicit biases, along with reactivity and superficiality. So pulling people out of reality for significant periods of time poses an inherent risk. Uh, Reality-based reality is the cure for what ails us. Uh, we are who happens to us and what we make of the happening. We are social beings. Uh, if we erode relationship, we erode our social beings and our minds. So that's my take on it. Now, two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha said, the mind in contact with pleasant experiences develops desire. Now that's not to say that pleasurable, pleasant experiences are bad or that desire is bad, but this is the process that he, this was his way of describing addiction. Uh, this is how we uh, become uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, you know, inflamed with a particular uh, uh, activity and we repeat it uh, because it's pleasant and we develop a desire. So um, the DSM, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, says that the disorder, uh, 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 typically eight to 10 hours a day are devoted to gaming or the internet and 30 or more hours a week. Uh, that's the official definition in the US about the equivalent of a full-time job. Um, and here are various uh, names for internet addiction, internet use disorder, internet communication disorder, internet addiction, uh, internet uh, 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 gaming disorder in the DSM gaming addiction, gaming disorder. There's also Facebook addiction and problematic Facebook use. So these are all terms that are used in research around the world, um, but internet gaming disorder is what's used in the US. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, there are the criteria in the US, um, there are certain uh, qualifications that say that, uh, that if, uh, for example, the people develop addiction just like to a substance. So if they're prevented from returning to the game, the addicted person can become agitated or angry. They can go long periods uh, without food or sleep just to gain. Uh, and we heard about uh, some young men in Korea dying while they're playing uh, games uh, for 50 or more hours. Okay, so, um, all right. so here are the top internet games worldwide uh, in 2018. World of Warcraft, The Elder Scrolls Online, Black Desert Online, Guild Wars, Final Fantasy 14. So these have uh, up to 7 million uh, players, active players. So, um, so they're, th these are called massively multiplayer online role-playing games. And they're played in competition between groups of players, often in different global regions, spanning many time zones, and thus creating a desire to stay online around the clock. And it can involve socialization, teamwork, and communication. Um, but what do you think are the main reasons people might play games? Distraction from reality. Distraction from reality, okay. Yeah, it takes them out of something that they find less appealing. Yeah, any other ideas? 
fun. It's fun, right, right, absolutely. It's fun, it's a pleasant experience. Um, okay, anything else? I think those are, those are two good reasons. Um, so, uh, so uh, the prevalence of internet addiction is highest uh, because it's most studied, I think, in Asian countries. Um, and it's highest in males aged 12 to 20 years old. And uh, in, in one Asian study of teens aged 15 to 19, uh, it was 8.4% in males and 4.5% in females. Um, and it's led to school failure, job loss, family and relational problems, marriage failure, and replacing a wide range of other activities. Um, so internet gaming is a ubiquitous and growing problem. Um, according to the Pew Research Center, half of American adults play video games, and 10% of all adults consider themselves gamers. Equal numbers of men and women play video games, but twice as many men as women call themselves gamers. 15% versus 6%. Among uh, 18 to 29 year olds, 33% of men call themselves gamers, while only 9% of women in that age category self-identify as gamers. So think about what it's like to be a, a, a kid in that age range or a young person in that age range when a third of the, the men are considering themselves gamers and they're spending a significant amount of time, only 9% of women are. So how does that affect gender relations, for example, and socialization? Um, so that's, that's an open question. Um, about half of Americans believe at least some games help them develop problem-solving and strategic skills, and over a third believe some games help develop teamwork and communication skills. So there may be some positives there. Well, could be, but this is a, a still being studied. Um, so we can ask what messages the medium is giving us. Game players are much more likely to agree, as you'd expect, with positive statements about gaming. Uh, still, 9% of game players think minorities are portrayed poorly in games, and 16% think women are portrayed poorly. 24% of gamers, so that's the, the people who game uh, most, uh, think women are portrayed poorly in games. 33% of game players and 46% of gamers do not think minorities are portrayed badly. And 26% of gamers and 35% of, uh, of game, 26% of game players and 35% of gamers do not think women are portrayed poorly. So still, I think that's the plurality. Um, and gamers of color, though, are about twice as likely to think gaming portrays women and minorities poorly, but 24% of blacks and 39% of Latinos don't feel that way. So there's obviously a lot of disagreement, but clearly there are messages that, that could uh, cause uh, women and minorities to feel like they're not being portrayed poorly. So that's something that, uh, that's an ethical question, I, I think, for, for gamers and, and for uh, the people who make games. Um, so, does gaming cause aggression? Uh, this is a controversial uh, topic. The effect size seems small, but it may be larger for those more at risk for aggression. Uh, one researcher wrote that white males may be more putatively at risk for cultural reasons because of an individualistic culture, a warrior-like culture, as that author put it. Um, and one study showed that only 4.8% of kids not playing violent video games were sent to the principal's office, whereas 9% of those playing these games were sent for discipline. 
So, uh, so the question is, are, they, are the people, the kids who are playing video games more likely to in, indulge in risky or aggressive behavior, or who are kids uh, who are more likely to engage in risky behavior also more likely to, to be playing video games for whatever reasons? Maybe their, their family life is not so good, so they're playing video games and they also happen to get in trouble. So it could be a correlation or some kind of, uh, some kind of association. It's still being studied. Uh, I wrote in my uh, little book on uh, guns uh, and the gun identity, video gaming has been associated with increased aggression, decreased empathy, and more tolerance for sexual harassment. LaPierre and Farrar found that gaming, particularly use of realistic gun controllers in first-person shooters, uh, was correlated with more negative attitudes towards gun control and positive attitudes towards gun availability even after controlling for variables such as libertarian beliefs. So uh, controlling for political beliefs uh, and other factors, uh, people who play video games are more likely to support gun, uh, gun habits and, and uh, gun, uh, negative attitudes towards gun control and, uh, and increasing uh, gun availability as well. So, so there is a, an effect on attitudes at the very least. And I won't get into all my points about moving on into social media, um, but you can look at my book uh, or look at my website, facebuddha.co, uh, for details, press, and podcasts, all free. There's also a mindfulness challenge uh, to, uh, to see uh, what kind of effect social media has on your personal life. So you can use that as well. Um, so about 68% of uh, American adults uh, are on Facebook as of uh, uh, 2018. Uh, Snapchat, uh, it's about the same in the age range 18 to 29, and all the rest are around 35% uh, or so. Um, so the internet and technology profoundly impact us all. A lot more of us are migrating onto social media. 2.2 billion people are on Facebook, larger than the Catholic Church and more than the number of Christians worldwide. Um, with tongue partly in cheek, I, I, I wrote that social media has become a religion. We thumb our phones like rosaries, and we take food pics instead of saying grace. Uh, and the selfie is kind of our beatification. So, uh, you know, I say this tongue in cheek, but, uh, but the fact is, it, this is, it's becoming kind of our everyday religion. It's such, such a part of our activity, and we kind of expect a kind of transcendence from this online activity. So, um, so we use social media for belonging, self-presentation, for out of curiosity, and out of a, a kind of desire or lust for connection and having friends. So these are all understandable and very human uh, desires, but we can wonder about how well the medium uh, actually uh, supplies these, uh, these qualities, particularly the, the, the need for belonging. So, uh, sociologists and anthropologists talk about the culture shock stages of migration to a new country. There's the honeymoon stage, where all, all seems great. Then there's the judgment, frustration, disillusionment stage. Then the transition or adjustment stage. Then the acceptance stage, and repeating steps two to four as needed. Now, I think that there's also a culture shock of moving online. And, in, and, and migrating onto the internet. There's also a honeymoon stage where there's that curiosity, exploration, experimentation, and exuberance about being online. 
then there's some kind of ambivalence or dissatisfaction which people may move to quickly or it might take a while. Uh, then there's a transition stage where you're adapting to the new environment or you're resigning to the limits of the environment. Um, and then people might exit or deactivate their social media accounts or, or take uh, uh, breaks from the internet, uh, log out of uh, all apps, etc. Um, and then people can cycle through these stages as well. Um, so, so I think that's important to keep in mind. Uh, uh, so uh, I think I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I kind of go between stage three and four a lot. Uh, and and I, I, so I deactivate and then come back on, take a little dip, find something I like, usually humor or, or uh, intellectual curiosity, uh, a little bit of relational uh, belonging, uh, but then, but then I, I find the real world much more appealing, so come back to the real world. Um, so these are some uh, uh, downloadable uh, images from my website, facebook.co, uh, that you can post if you're taking a break from social media. Um, and just to kind of broadcast uh, that you're catching up with friends or catching up on reading uh, or the real world. Um, so, um, so there are, uh, there are reasons uh, that, uh, that problematic internet use happens. Um, it often stems from interpersonal difficulties, such as introversion or social anxiety or other social problems. Communicating online uh, or retreating into an online world can seem safer and easier than communicating face-to-face, -face, as we talked about, people you know, kind of looking at their smartphones instead of talking to the person next to them. Um, and this can be a vicious cycle, as, relation, as a lack of relational success in the real world can lead back to online interaction. Um, so addicts also have limited so social support systems. Uh, loneliness is associated with the development of internet addiction. Chat rooms, interactive games, instant messaging, and social media are the most addictive, highlighting that the condition is socially motivated. People are looking for some kind, generally looking for some kind of social connection online. Um, uh, so, uh, so real world relational problems or online allures can also lead to internet mediated romances or affairs. Um, so another way that, uh, that the internet can, can uh, people can try to use the internet to fulfill social needs. So there are two kinds of internet addicts. There are the dual diagnosed internet addicts and there are the new internet addicts. Um, the dual diagnosed uh, have some other mental health issues such as depression, anxiety, uh, maybe substance abuse, etc. all these other mental health issues. And then the internet comes on top of that to self-medicate those underlying mental health issues and avoid the underlying feelings and situations that propel the addictive cycle. Then there are the people who are the new internet addicts who have, seem to have no uh, underlying mental health uh, issue. Um, but they get addicted. A 50-year-old lawyer using sex chat rooms during work hours and without his wife's knowledge, okay? A 30-year-old business executive compulsively checking his iPhone uh, to check his Bumble potential girlfriends. A 20-year-old college student constantly scrolling Instagram and TikTok. That's pretty familiar. Um, a 16-year-old boy constantly playing World of Warcraft with no other comorbidity. So these examples are for, from Kimberly Young's textbook that I, I quoted earlier in, in the uh, lecture. So um, there are, uh, there are 
uh, problems, uh, biological problems that internet addiction can cause. And I think this is kind of scary. We're still in the early stages of sorting this out. Um, but uh, there's some pretty good research that shows that there's actual loss of uh, uh, gray matter in the brain, uh, frontal cortex atrophy, uh, uh, loss of white matter integrity, reduced cortical thickness, which leads to increased impulsivity, impaired cognitive functioning, and with frontal lobe problems, long-term planning is inhibited uh, or, or derailed. Uh, Well-being uh, is, is uh, promoted by a functioning frontal lobe uh, and positive mood. Relationship skills also uh, integral in uh, uh, coming out of the frontal lobe's function. So the reward pathways are also changed. Uh, changes in serotonin and dopamine receptor genotypes. Uh, uh, and people who are internet addicted have personality traits similar to depressed patients. Um, and, and so and, and the MRI scans uh, show changes similar to substance abuse and gambling addiction as well. So there are brain uh, problems coming out of inter excessive internet use. Um, and so the treatment approach is obviously limiting internet use, uh, abstinence from and deactivation of problematic apps, a particular game, gambling, pornography, or social media site, uh, treating the underlying psychosocial issue, uh, for example, the uh, mood or anxiety uh, or other psychiatric disorder, uh, the, the relational problem, job burnout, whatever's driving people online to treat that. And also policy changes. I think, you know, uh, uh, we, need, we might need to break up the big tech companies to, to not have them have such an influence or somehow regulate what they do. Uh, and also for the government and other uh, organizations to put out guidelines. For example, uh, what I've heard is that uh, the, the tech company executives, they don't allow their children to use screens before the age of 12. So that should say something about what they think uh, the effects of these things are. Um, so in the US, there is uh, uh, just one program that I know of, a 45-day residential care program in Fall City, Washington called Restart. Um, China uses military-like boot, or military-run boot camps, actually, uh, and they're very kind of harsh and, and highly disciplined. Uh, there's a movie called Web Junkie about that. South Korea is the most advanced. Um, there are 140-plus internet addiction counseling centers, treatment programs at 100 hospitals, um, and internet rescue camp for the most severe cases, which you saw in the video. And these are all paid for, the, the gov paid for by the government and tuition free. And this is in a population of 50 million or so people. Um, so this is quite extensive. So they're taking this problem very seriously there. Um, and I think we should definitely take our cues uh, from Asia in this regard. Um, so the rate of internet addiction amongst Korean children and adolescents ranges between 9.4 and 11.7%, that's 2012. The normal group posted 2.1 hours online a day, while the at-risk group and high-risk groups post, uh, posted 2.5 and 3.1 hours a day. And their definition of risk appears to be different and lower than those currently suggested by the DSM, so they're actually capturing more people and treating them. Um, the addicted group spent most of their time on games, whereas the normal group spent most of their time on messaging apps. Korean researchers have found that low self-esteem, lack of family resources, and emotional avoidance are prevalent in the internet addicted. 
So um, this is Yun Suk Cho in, in, in uh, the book called of Internet Addiction, um, uh, a great textbook and resource. The majority of the problems arising from internet addiction encompass mental and physical health problems, parent-child relational problems, and problems with school coursework. Clinicians working in frontline centers observe that many internet-addicted adolescents face problems such as failing to keep up with schoolwork, lying, poor peer relationships, stealing, being victims of cybercrime, being tardy and coming home late, sleep deprivation, and irregular eating habits. Internet addicts are also likely to experience physical problems commonly related with computer overuse, such as eye strain, neck pain, chronic fatigue, and weight gain. It is because of such problems that the clients and their families call for internet addiction intervention services. So, um, so again, there's a lot of information that's been developed in Asia, which, uh, which we should uh, really pay more attention to at all levels of our, our society. So this is a book uh, by Virginia Heffernan called Magic and Loss, The Internet as Art. And, and so, so here's another kind of cyber evangelist. She writes that the internet as an idea rivals monotheism, okay? And it is an integral part of our humanity, the latest and most powerful extension and expression of the project of being human. She writes, the internet is so abstract and powerful that we glimpse it the way we see the face of God in the interstices and lacuna of the Torah. I mean, that's very poetic, but I mean, you know, it's, it's quite inflated uh, to my view. But, uh, but that's, you know, think of the idea of this vast web of connections uh, around the world and all this information and possibility. And you can kind of see how vast it seems compared to the individual. And so that's, I think that's a, that's a metaphor or a parallel with what a person might feel uh, beholding God, I suppose, uh, or thinking about God, or even, uh, I think, uh, the awe that you might see in the Grand Canyon or something is, you know, so she's, she's kind of feeling that kind of awe, and I, I, can, I can understand that, but again, I think it's a bit inflated, um, yeah. And so Marshall McLuhan uh, said, uh, uh, years uh, in, in the 40s, um, and, he, and again emphasizing that these ideas of technological transcendence have been percolating for some time. Um, so he wrote, he wrote the medium is the message, but he wrote, electric circuitry is orientalizing the West, the contained, the distinct, the separate, our Western legacy is being replaced by the flowing, the unified, the fused. He implied that our separateness is being brought into interdependence and merger through technology. Well, I mean, as a Buddhist practitioner, I know that that quality of interdependence is actually very important uh, to break us out of this delusion of self-centeredness that we have. Um, but, uh, but I think we can get there through consciousness, too, and through relationship, uh, rather than the internet. Now, the internet is, is a powerful uh, metaphor for interdependence and how we rely on others and are connected to them. But I think we can find that in our own minds and hearts. Okay. Um, so uh, there's a best-selling Swedish philosopher and internet theorist, Alexander Bard. He's the author of the Futurica, Futurica trilogy. He said, 
both that we become truly human beings through the internet, and the internet will change us completely, even in the essence of what a human being is, as if we were not human before the internet. To him, he's actually written this, the internet is the Holy Spirit, and the internet is God. By creating the internet, we are creating God, he says. Needless to say, Bard has not, to my knowledge, produced any credentials to speak on either the Holy Spirit or God, um, considering there's just as much evidence to call the internet the devil as God, uh, that you can see how absurd the proposition is. I think he confuses our technological foray with a spiritual one, precisely because we are attempting to make a relational story online, and relationship is ultimately a spiritual quest. The internet is seen as the preferred and only route to a higher, more expansive level of cognition, relatedness, and even transcendence of our fleshy, mortal lives. So it seems so much more than just me sitting in a room alone. But is it really more than me sitting alone reading a book or talking to a friend? I mean, I think there, there may be different experiences, uh, but to, uh, but to uh, equate uh, the internet with uh, a pure transcendence is, is again inflated. Okay, so I, of course, you, you've seen this quote before. We are who happens to us and what we make of the happening. Um, and I think the main problem of the internet and social media for me as a psychiatrist is that we are in danger of eroding our social beings and the feeling of society that comes through deep, complex, and complex and nuanced relationship. Along with this, our ability to tolerate difficulty and distress, and through this process, develop wisdom and the capacity for love and compassion. The experience of interbeing and interdependence, what Koreans call jong, that sense that one's self and the selves of others are not separate, comes most surely through real-world experience. We will definitely need to be advocates for relatedness in the real world and also the virtual worlds that are starting to emerge. Um, in the age of technology, what will bring us back to ourselves? What will cultivate our goodness and relatedness? Um, there are too many ways that relatedness goes awry online. There are frightening ways that the internet has facilitated child abuse, for example, and ways that our privacy and thus uh, sense of self even are endangered. Um, so I think we do really need to consciously put effort into cultivating our relatedness and our goodness in connection with each other. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so this is a major question for us and for the future of society. Um, so, yeah, thank you for listening and uh, yeah, that's it. If you have any questions, we can, we can uh, entertain those now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, all right. I am surprised that one of the major problems is, I mean, I see little kids do these games, but I always thought it was a small thing. I'm surprised from what I see in the statistics of what are happening in other countries. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. Uh, as the uh, documentary said, uh, Korea was at the forefront of saying, the internet's the future. We're gonna make fast broadband available to just about everyone, and they've done it. They've got the fastest internet in the world. Um, so, you know, they, they're, they're the pioneers uh, of that, but they, along with it, they very, became very conscious of the downsides, and they're, they're implementing those, uh, uh, 
kind of treatment modalities. I think that's, you know, we don't have anything near that scale here. And we, I think we'll have to, um, you know, so, and uh, yeah, right, right, yeah. Uh, the internet companies are making so much money off of people spending time. I mean, people call it uh, social media labor, for example, the two hours a day or more that people spend on Facebook. Well, what about treating the problems that come out of Facebook and, and you know, with some of the money that they're earning uh, from this? Uh, and, you know, I think, I think this is a, a question we should all be asking our politicians. Uh, where's our, uh, our dividend from, from all this time? And how do we, you know, how do we help our kids uh, with the problems they're encountering online? Uh, and we could be doing a lot more as a society. discuss what they're doing online and also having parental controls you know like okay you're not going to visit you know these prohibited websites and so forth I think that's that's important um, uh, because kids you know once you once you get on Google you can find anything and and someone has to exert some parental control and you know I think uh, we've probably all seen uh, kids in strollers looking at smartphones I mean no. you know that's uh, because it's yeah it's just easier to like it's just a passive it's a different kind of, it's a visual pacifier for for uh for two and three year olds and and i think that's right i mean i appreciate these parents are stressed out they just want something to hand to their child but uh but what's the effect going to be in 10 15 years are we going to have in 10 20 years these uh, young adults who have less impulse control, maybe poor rela relational skills. I mean, that's, that's what I'm worried about. Um, will we have to be inventing new ways to, to build frontal cortex and, and to build relationship and, and skill, social skills which kids should have developed on the playground, you know? So I don't think I'm overblowing a concern. I think that, that is out there and that's... That's uh, part of what I see happening. I mean, I think, I think there's, there is definitely a lot of good young people are getting out of the internet too, uh, especially for uh, members of minority groups, I think, uh, finding solidarity across a broad geographic region uh, by connecting with others. And there's good there. But, you know, I think that, that kind of emotional isolation that comes about from thinking that you're different I mean, is the internet really the only way we can work at that, or are there other ways we can reach those young people and, and help them feel a part of society? Uh, because that, that's so important. I know I have a friend, uh, she's a, a grandparent, she, she, her husband's gone, so she invites her kids, her grandchildren, and she says, whenever they're there, hi, Grandma, and off to the internet. And so she says she doesn't relate to them at all. So that is a big shame. 
Right, right. We see those little gaps, those little, little abandonments, I think. Turn to your device and the other person is just, you know, I see grown-up couples sitting across the table at, at a restaurant and they're all looking at their uh, devices. And couples and at right, right, right. You see that. And, you know, maybe they would have been reading a newspaper, you know, years ago. I don't know. So I'm not, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you wonder about these little ways we pull away from each other. And then what, you know, is that, what does that create? How does that uh, prime us? Um, you know, Anais Nin said, everything is a preparation for love. Well, how does this prepare us for love? You know, I mean, because I think that's, you know, where human life really is found, is in love and relationship and compassion. And uh, yeah, so uh, if we withdraw into a screen, is that preparing you for love or is that just distracting you from, from real life and uh, connection to the earth, connection to uh, your fellow human beings? It's terrible. I mean, uh, I saw somebody send me a picture. There are 10 people on the table. Guess what they're all doing? Yeah. Right, right. I mean, you have a big table at a party. You're supposed right. to be living, but everybody's looking at your cell phones. Right. Right. So it was kind of strange, and he said, picture, he said, look at this. <laughs> I said, oh, you know, the other thing is I think that people are spending so much time trying to be productive in some way online that it can feel like the internet or putting something on the internet is more important uh, and at least more easily accessible than trying to uh, you know, work with a community organization or, or make friends or, you know, I, I found in the last 10 years, maybe this is just because I'm older, it's harder to make new friends in San Francisco. Uh, it's just, it, people just, there's just a little bit, I mean, there's more stress because of financial issues and so forth, more new people, so a little bit, you know, so, but, but people, you might, you know, it's just harder, uh, before you just uh, used to meet people at a community event and, you know, it seems like you would see each other regularly and you'd form a connection. Now, it's, it just seems harder to make friends here. Yeah. Um, I think people yeah. should yeah. set the rule when they're out in restaurants not to be using the cell phones. Yeah. Because they're, they, all those people there, they're not relating to each other. Yeah. Just, yeah. why are they there? Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. generationally too, it's like uh, elders used to be venerated because they had the knowledge, you know. So right. now it's like, well, the kids are like, I just look it up online. You know? Right. So, you know, so there, there's right. that thing too. You know? Right. Right. Like, that's, there's no respect that's right. for the elders. You know? That's right. And uh, yeah, You're, you hit the nail on the head uh, as an elder <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I think there always there used to be the the saying, uh, don't trust anyone over 30, right, uh, back in the 60s. And, and now I think we should say, don't trust anyone over 30,000 followers, you know, because, <laughs> I mean, it gets to be, you know, not to say they're, they're bad people or something, but there's something a little unreal about having so many Facebook friends and so many followers. I mean, who are you kind of producing for? What are you doing there online? And uh, is, is this weird kind of inflation, uh, maybe a, a, a manifestation or experiment in identity, but how, how does that relate to who you are in the real world? I mean, you know, so, um, so I think that's, uh, that's true. Um, yeah, and, and you know, people, uh, I think in general, uh, making 
conversation can be awkward. Um, and, you know, if we retreat from those uncomfortable moments, then we won't gain, right? It's a little bit of risk, and I think there, there's potentially a lot of gain. But also millennials uh, and young people are the least trusting generation uh, for the last 70 years that has been tested uh, uh, in surveys. Uh, uh, millennials only say they trust other people 18% of the time. That only 18% of millennials say that people are generally to be trusted. So we have a very low trusting uh, young population and which it makes it more awkward to make new connections. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, so instead of maybe meeting people at a party, you might just go on the dating apps and that'll be you, you like, People have to qualify to earn your time, and you know. I mean, I think that cuts out a lot of people, and and I think that's uh, that's also not a good habit for the mind either to be so narrow about who one looks at or appreciates. But it's safe. It might be, feel safer. So I understand why people are doing it. But yeah, I I do it. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I know there's that discrimination on dating apps by just pictures. Right. Right. Them. Color right, exactly, exactly. I've talked about that in a previous lecture. Yeah, just uh, uh, Asian men, black women are least desirable on dating apps. And you know, so I think it's, it's uh, you know, I think we have to, if we're, we're I think young people are generally about uh, getting rid of conscious bias and unconscious bias and all this, but you know, it's like, I think we only do that by actually having relationships and accepting people as they are, not how we want them to be. And you only learn that in the real world. So, uh, so that's my, my hope is that we spend more time engaged in the real world. And that will help us uh, uh, with all this race consciousness that the internet has also provided, uh, work together towards eliminating biases of all kinds and, and making us less self-centered as well. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks for watching this lecture. You can see more lectures on my YouTube channel or at ravichandramd.com and sflovedojo.org. And you can sign up for classes as well on my sflovedojo.org website. Thank you so much.